Good morning and welcome to worship here at Naples United Church of Christ. We are so blessed by your presence this morning and we're grateful for all of the ways that we're able to worship together, be it Facebook Live, live stream or audio podcast. My name is Dawson Taylor and I serve as senior minister. I wanna highlight a few things that are happening in the life and ministry of this great church just as we begin worship this morning. I want to say words of gratitude for everyone who joined me on Friday morning for our dialogue with Dawson. This was our second one, and it's just a great opportunity for us to gather together and for me to update uh, people who are interested more perhaps on the business side of the church and what's happening and decisions that are made by the council and executive committee. And again, I appreciate uh, those who joined me and we'll do it again in October. We've not set a date yet but we'll certainly get that advertised as soon as it's set. Earlier this summer, um, I recorded a series of interviews with mission partners who are making such a difference. And one of the key subjects that we discussed was how our mission partners are pivoting or changing their approach to serving our community in the midst of the pandemic. This interview with Reverend Lisa Lefko, who serves as the Chief Executive Officer of Habitat for Humanity Collier was unique because we also were able to include Dr. Bob and Candy Nordland, who also volunteer with Habitat. So they experienced and were able to share what it's like to volunteer in before the pandemic and after the pandemic, as well as to hear from Lisa. And so let's take a moment and see a highlight of that interview. And then of course, we'll be posting the full interview on our website and it's available now. But I just wanna take a moment and, and see some of the highlights of that interview. How are you doing just in general? Yeah, so that's a, thank you. And thank you for this opportunity yeah. to be together in, uh, in this virtual room. Um, you know, actually, Habitat is is doing in remarkably well, um, and there's one reason for that, and the reason is that we are uh, we are faith based, and we know that uh, God is making a way. Um, mostly, we're doing what we always do, uh, which is building hope, building homes, building communities and um, continuing to make that life-changing difference to families. But how are you doing? How is your family? Um, how are things in life in the life of the pandemic? Well, I, I think we've all noticed some major changes here first. And uh, uh, we do live in an area where uh, our first uh, perception was that people were maybe taking it a little too lightly, but it is, uh, not the inner city of Minneapolis where people live so close together and so on. So being outdoors or the golf courses activities were, were still open here uh, compared to uh, even some shutdown time before we left Naples. But uh, we found uh, that uh, now as things are kind of revving up a little bit across the whole country and especially in, in Florida, we're uh, doing, uh, we just passed uh, the governor met uh, and passed a regulation that everybody inside has to be wearing masks in any kind of public setting. Segue from essential services. Um, so our our goal was to close 95 homes. Um, we actually completed with the help of our incredible volunteer workforce and families contributing their sweat equity. We were able to complete 
uh, more homes. We actually completed more than 100 homes. It, um, what we discovered is that Habitat families are essential service workers. <laughs> so many of them are in the healthcare field. They're working in assisted living facilities. They're working in hospitals. They're CNAs, certified nursing assistants. How could you help those of us who are uh, stuck at home uh, understand how you are having to really, you know, to use the the business term pivot and really do things differently. Sure. So we've we've already touched on on that a little bit in that we've really moved into this virtual world. Yeah. And so just as you have done things to uh, set up the studio and to give folks an opportunity to be able to engage from afar, mm -hmm. uh, we have done the same. Yeah. Um, and. Again, I'm so grateful for the ministry of Habitat for Humanity, for volunteers like Bob and Candy and so many others in our congregation. And of course, we are proud to be one of the four founding faith communities of Habitat Collier and to continue that great relationship, great ministry partnership. So again, Habitat continues to make such a meaningful impact in our community and beyond. After worship today, I hope you'll join us for the virtual gathering place. It's always a great opportunity to connect with other church members, the clergy team, other staff. And so we hope that you'll join us. There is a button in your Saturday night e-blast that will take you right there. If you don't receive that e-blast, if you've lost it since uh, last night, or if you just need help, feel free to call the church at 239 261 Five four six nine, and one of the staff will be happy to help. We'll need your name, email address, and phone number just to verify identity and make sure that we get that link sent to the right place. But again, we hope that you'll join us for that. You know, last week we had that great bell choir that joined us for the prelude. If you missed it, make sure you go back and watch Worship on Archive. This afternoon, I'm really excited because one of the NUCC favorites, a personal friend of mine, a longtime friend of Dr. Becky's, uh, will be doing a virtual concert at 4 p.m. this afternoon. The concert is entitled, My Favorite Things. Javier Abreu, a well-renowned tenor, and Jeremy Rieger uh, on piano will be presenting this concert again this afternoon at 4 p.m. There will be a button in your e-blast. There's also, it will be available on our website. And so I hope that you'll join us. And if you're unable to join us, of course, it will also be archived. So we're grateful to Javier and to Jeremy for recording this concert for us. It's uh, content exclusive for Naples United Church of Christ. And so again, we hope that you'll take time this afternoon to enjoy about 45 minutes of beautiful music as we, of course, always enjoy when we get to experience the music of Javier and Jeremy. As a mission-driven congregation, let us center our hearts and our minds as we begin worship this morning. Will you join your hearts with mine in prayer? Let us pray. Loving and gracious God, we do give you thanks for the gift of this day and for your presence with us. And in this time of worship, it is our prayer, O oh God, that you would speak through me or in spite of me, but that above all else we would hear with clarity what it is that you say to us this day. 
All of this we trust and we ask in your many names. Amen. I recently read about a man who went to see his doctor because he was feeling absolutely terrible. And he feared that perhaps he had contracted COVID-19. The doctor gave him a careful examination, left the room to look at some test results, came back in and with a very somber expression on his face said, Sir, I really don't know how to break the news to you, but you have rabies and you're going to die very soon. The man very calmly got out a piece of paper and began to write furiously. The doctor looked quizzically and said, what are you doing? Are you making out your will? The man responded, oh no, I'm writing out a list of people I'm going to bite before I die. Perhaps I am the only one who's ever been tempted to make such a list. But I bet there are a few among us that have had to make real efforts to overcome bitterness or anger. Then Peter came and said to Jesus, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Now, the problem that forgiveness presents is this. Forgiveness deals directly with sin. Forgiveness has to deal with perhaps some of the most unpleasant things in our lives, and that is when someone else does wrong to you. We're not talking about overlooking some type of behavior that is justified with some type of excuse. Forgiveness deals with truly missing the mark. If the behavior that forgiveness deals with can be excused, then it doesn't need to be forgiven. It simply needs to be accepted. The reason why forgiveness is so difficult is because it deals with the inexcusable. It handles the unacceptable. It has to relate to the unforgettable. Even the very word forgiveness tells us how difficult it actually is. Because the word literally means to let go or to send away. Forgiveness is when you release any bitterness that you might feel you have a right to or a right to hold against someone else. It is the willingness to send the offender and the offense away into the hands of God. Psychology professor Dr. Archibald Hart defines forgiveness as giving up my right to hurt you for hurting me. In this morning's scripture reading, Peter asks the question that many people want to ask, but are too ashamed to do so. 
His question was, how many times do I have to forgive someone who sins against me? And then Peter attempts a shrewd trick. He suggests to Jesus, up to seven times? Now, that seemed very generous to Peter, because according to the Talmud, the rabbinic law, you were obligated to forgive someone three times. But after the third time, you could beat the plowshare into a sword and run your opponent out of town. You were no longer obligated to forgive. And in other words, this was the original three strikes and you're out law. So Peter thinks that he's being very generous. He doubles the number of times that the law demanded, and then he added one as a free pass. After all, any Jew knew that the number seven also denoted perfection. So Peter thought that he had literally arrived at the perfect answer. You had to forgive a person seven times, and then after that, the gloves come off. But as usual, Jesus gives an answer that was not only surprising, but absolutely stunning. Because verse 22 tells us not seven times, but I tell you 77 times. Now understand that when Jesus said 77 times, he was not giving a math lesson. No, what Jesus is actually saying is that the number seven denotes perfection. He is multiplying perfection times perfection. Jesus does not allow for three strikes and you're out. Peter thought that if someone sinned against you and then repented and you forgave them and then they did the exact same thing, and repented, and you forgave them, then you could say, that's two. But Jesus goes on to say, no, 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 you don't get to keep a scorecard like that. If someone sins against you the first time, and you forgive that person, then you promise not to hold it against them. So if they sin again, you cannot say that's two. You've got to say... That's one. Now, how did Jesus arrive at this conclusion? Peter was appealing to the law. But you see, Jesus, Jesus was appealing to love. Because forgiveness has nothing to do with the law. It has everything to do with love. The law has limits. Love does not. The law keeps count. Love does not. The law keeps record. Love does not. The law has a long memory. Love has no memory. To illustrate the truth about forgiveness, Jesus tells a parable about a man who embezzled a great sum of money. In fact, the sum is 10,000 talents. 
a staggering amount of money in those days. To put it in context, Jesus was speaking these words in the region of Galilee. The entire tax for one year of that region was 200 talents. The man owed the equivalent of 50 years of taxes on the entire region of Galilee. To put it another way, a man would have had to work 20 years in order to earn one talent. So this man would have had to have worked 500 years to have paid back the money he stole. And that is without interest. In today's currency, this could be translated, if you will, or converted to roughly $9 million. The point is, it's an unpayable debt. There was absolutely no way that this person could pay the debt. But this is what the king did. The king took the debt and turned it into a loan. In other words, the king realized that the money had been embezzled and considered it as a loan and then forgave the loan. To put it another way, he took what was a theft, turned it into a debt, and then took what was a debt and turned it into a gift. And then paid the full amount of the gift out of his own pocket. And you can see immediately what happens. The debtor owed a debt he could not pay, and the king paid a debt he did not owe. Now what happens? The slate is clean. The debt was canceled, and the prisoner was released. Nothing was left hanging over anyone's head. The books were closed. But here's something that I've learned and grown to understand about forgiveness. Forgiveness is both an attitude and an action. So this man who had just been released of this debt comes upon one of his debtors. Rather than reciprocating with forgiveness, he ruthlessly demands full payment. But in truth, I don't think he was looking for payment. He was looking for punishment. The man owed him only 100 denarii, about 100 days wages, and today's money, about $15, or one six hundredth of what he owed the king. The man who owed $9 million was not willing to forgive the man who owed $15. When the king hears about the hypocrisy, he immediately has him thrown back into prison, and the man is back in debt. So if you hear nothing else today, please hear this. Forgiveness is as much for us as it is for the other person. If you cannot forgive, it's like holding a hot coal in your hand. You are the one getting burned. In a series on forgiveness, the Washington Post reported on a couple that realized their marriage might end there. 
on the hard plastic chairs in a St. Paul, Minnesota office. Years of grievances had spilled forth when Bridget Manley Mayer asked the couple what had brought them there. How the wife resented being the family's breadwinner and spokesperson for 13 years while her introverted husband held back. How the husband resented the wife's resentment. We really had our pattern established. It's his fault. It's her fault. And the fingers never pointed at ourselves, the wife said. What brought them actually to the counseling session was the wife's affair. She had told her husband about it while they were at the cabin earlier that year. And he was so distraught that he drove off in the middle of the night, but came back before the two kids woke up so that they wouldn't suspect anything. A few miserable months later, they found Mayer, who practices discernment counseling, a type of couples therapy designed to help spouses decide in five sessions or less whether to divorce. The protocol for discernment offers couples three choices at each session. Stay together and commit to six months of couples therapy. Begin the divorce process or come back for another session, which would end with the same three options. The wife wanted the divorce, but couldn't bear the havoc that it would wreak on her family. The husband wanted to stay together, but didn't know how to fix what was so desperately broken. Would you be open to coming back and continuing to work through this? Mayor asked. They both said yes. They talked about how at the gut punch reveal, the husband thought the affair was over. But when the wife was acting funny one morning before she left for work, he checked her shared location on his iPhone and she was at someone's house. He drove over, rang the doorbell, and when the man's wife had been seeing answered, the husband said, please send my wife out. She emerged sheepishly, got into her car, and drove away. But when Mayer asked the three questions, they chose to return. They talked about their avoidant behaviors and about unstable childhoods and about previous marriages of their parents. They talked about the potential for divorce and the impact on their children. They talked about their pain and airing their dirty laundry. They talked about what life would be like without one another. They kept going back again and again. At the fourth session, the husband said, if we're going to try to work this out, I had to forgive her. He realized he had forgiveness to earn too for burying his feelings and not being honest. 
to accept her husband's forgiveness, the wife knew I had to really forgive myself. She was plagued with shame. Forgiveness never took the form of a big speech or a heartfelt letter. It came gradually, in in spurts. As the wife demonstrated her remorse and trustworthiness, and the husband worked hard at opening up. They would work with Mayer for a year and a half until they realized that they didn't need that level of help anymore. They had pulled their marriage back from the brink. Twelve years later, it remains stronger and more honest than ever. When they walked into that fifth session, they didn't know how they could do it anymore. But when Mayer asked the questions for the last time, they looked at each other because they finally knew the answer that they wanted to keep working. The psalmist wrote, As far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our transgressions from us. My friends, we must remember to forgive and to forgive with the abundance that we have been forgiven by God. And it is only then that true healing and love can be at the center of our faith and our world. And maybe, just perhaps, it can begin today.